0: We're gonna begin Exodus 1522. Today, last week, we started into chapter 15 and the song of Moses, the high point, and God's people being delivered and praising him. As we start here, I want you to imagine that it's Sunday which isn't hard to do since it's Sunday right now. Uh, Imagine that it's Sunday and you're singing with the saints and you're just reminded all these realities about your God, that he's the one who protects you, he's the one who provides for you, he, he guides you, he's your strength and song and salvation. But now it's Monday and your water is shut off. And then it's Tuesday and you have water, but it tastes really bad and then it's Wednesday, and the water is still really bad, and you're wondering if you're going to die or not. Are you still singing about your protector, provider, and guide on Wednesday? Are you still remembering all the things that you were praising God for on Sunday? Well, Israel made it at least three days before they started their grumbling. and Do you think that you might be able to break their record. And what would your response to that sort of testing in your life reveal about your belief in God? What would it it reveal about your belief in God's goodness? What would it reveal about what was in your heart, the, the sin that resides there? And what would it reveal that you really actually need what kind of salvation or rescue would that moment reveal that you truly need? When you start here into Exodus 15, it's a section that begins with water. And in chapter 17, it ends with water. We're not going to get that far. But in beginning into this text, we're going to learn something about who God is as is the nature of the book of Exodus, we're going to learn something about who man is as well and what man's true need is and how only God can provide that need. Starting into this first paragraph, verses 22 to 26, what we're going to see here and starting into this is how Yahweh provides a a tree of life-giving water. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to read all the way through chapter 16 to give us some context because it'll make some of the comments in the earlier text make a little bit more sense. So we'll start with... Somebody reading 22 to 27, and then we'll get volunteers for other sections. So, who will read Exodus 15 22 to 27?
1: I got it. I got it. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, The Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute, a regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord, your God, do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, All the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy day palms, and they camped there beside the waters.
0: All right, Corey, you want to pick up 16 1 through 8?
2: (laughs) They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the wheat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, And in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, as He has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling, you grumble against Him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, against Yahweh.
0: Then Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumblings. Now it happened as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they turned toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud and Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight, you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. So that you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So it happened at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. Then the layer of dew evaporated. And behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And the sons of Israel saw it and said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. He shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much and some little, and they measured it with an omer. And he who had gathered much had no excess. And he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered morning by morning, every man as much as he would eat. But the sun would grow hot, and it would melt. Now it happened that on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. Then all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said to them, this is what Yahweh has spoken. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is in excess put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had commanded. And it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. And Moses said, eat it today. For today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened on the seventh day that some of the people went out together, but they found none. Then Yahweh said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you bread for Two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel named it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, it. and taste, its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omerful of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before Yahweh to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna, until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an Omer is a tenth of an ephah. Our gracious Lord, we pray that you would bless the the reading and the study and the teaching of your word, that it would come into our living for you and honoring you and learning from your instruction that is given here, how not to desire evil and how we have need that you would save us more than just moving us in location, but to change our hearts. Amen. Going back to Exodus 15 and looking there at verse 22, as I mentioned, we see that Yahweh provides a tree of life giving water. And it's in this text that we learn the nature of So here's the setting: the sons of Israel had just gone out from the Red Sea, and what what did God do with water there? He does God have any any trouble in controlling things concerning water? No, you see that the God who controlled the water, the land, and the skies, and the plagues, and that one event of the Red Sea, he controls the water, land, and sky for the deliverance of the sons of Israel to show that all of that plague power was focused into his power to deliver his people. And who was it that did that with the water? It was the water controller. It was God. (laughs) So keeping that in mind when Israel comes to complain about the water being bitter. Who's the water controller? It, it's not Moses, but it's it's God. He he had did he he has done this for a purpose, for a reason. And what happened with this water that they named Mara, which means bitter, is it shows that, that life apart from God is bitter. Now this is you know, similar to Naomi's grumblings to Ruth when we get to the book of Ruth. Now, let me see that the people complained against Moses, but Moses wasn't the one who created or controlled the water. Uh, the, the people have a bitter problem, but the one who sweetens the situation is the God who has the only solution for this bitter situation. And what happens here is you see you know, Moses, the mediator, cries out to their new master. That's what happens in this event. And what is it that the new master provides for them? Does he shout at them and say, you know, go make your own water and find your own. And not only do you have to make your own water, but uh, you have to find your own ways to uh, purify it, and I'm not even going to give you buckets to get it anymore. Maybe that's what Pharaoh would do, their old master. But their new master provides a fill-in-the-blank. Yahweh showed Moses a tree. Trees are important when it comes to salvation. So, a tree of life is provided to give life giving water, and God gives us <coughs> first instruction to his people here, and that instruction involves a tree of life, but it's also a tree of testing. Does this sound familiar like something else we've read about before? What's beginning to happen here is that you're you're getting a basis for understanding the nature of the law, the nature of God's law. Uh, You're getting the basis for how do you understand and answer questions like this. How does the law and gospel relate? How does the law and grace relate? How do God's people relate to God's law? Or what is the the purpose of the law? What's the difference between uh, antinomianism and legalism? What's the difference between I don't have to follow the law and I do have to follow the law? And is either of those sort of ideas even right? How did Paul come up with his understanding of the law that he taught in the book of Galatians? Uh, Is it the nature of the law to be a way to save yourself? Can the law save you? Is the law a means of sanctification? Can it bring you closer to God? Somehow, the basis for beginning to understand how to answer those questions is in our text that we're going to, to look at, and my aim is going to be able to show that to you, and what cues us in on seeing that this explains the nature of the law is found in those words in verse 25, where it says, Yahweh showed him a tree. The the verb that is there is from the word Torah. When you guys think about the word Torah, what do you think about? Yeah. Law, instruction, that's the idea. Uh, a synonymous way to translate the text instead of show to see, Yahweh instructed him concerning a tree. Is that this this is how torah works uh, it's an instructor the the primary thing that we should see about the nature of god's law is that it instructs which is going to be our second. put it, since it's a second point, I'll put a one point and a three point, so it'll be a chiasm, since we're good Hebrew students like that. So, the nature of the law, one of the things that you want to not overlook is Moses, before this all happened, Moses cried out to Yahweh. So we see that it involves
2: mediator.
0: And this mediator is the one who cries out to Yahweh, but it's Yahweh alone who provides the solution. And as we said, this is something that it it instructs to something. It instructs to the means of salvation. And we see that and it says you know, Yahweh tore him a tree. He instructed him concerning a tree. He showed him a tree. He pointed him to a tree. And you see that what the nature of the law is is that it points to something. It's pointing to a solution. In this case, a tree that makes bitter into sweet. A tree that purifies. It's instruction in purity. That's the nature of Torah that it instructs or that it points to. But when you think about this event and what transformed the water, what was it that transformed the water? Was it the instruction or the tree? Tree, tree? Right, it's not the the means, but the, well, the law is not the means of the salvation, but it points to the means of salvation. Uh, it's a tutor, not a savior, is the point. And this is, as we kind of go through this, if you want me to clarify things, please, please feel free to ask questions. This is uh, hard on the brain, and it's it's hard on the human condition because we tend to see these things backwards. You know, when it comes to dealing with the nature of the law, I remember a, a book by Sinclair Ferguson, an older Scottish pastor. He said, "This is the most difficult issue in all of pastoral ministry to." to teach on and to discern, not only in counseling others, but even in oneself, because it says you can have it right in the heart and look wrong on the outside. And he says you can also have it wrong in the heart and look right on the outside. And it's something that you can't always figure out. And as we see with Israel, and as we see even when we move into our New Testament with the Judaizers, and you think about a book like Galatians, it has been a great human struggle in history to understand the nature of the law. But we see about the nature of the law that it's, it's not a, a how-to sort of thing. It, he doesn't just come to Moses and teach him and say, Moses, this is how to purify water. But he says, this is a command. That I'm going to give you and I'm going to fulfill it. And there's a big difference there. It's, you could also think about the rod when Moses had the, the rod and he lifted up, he lifted it up before the water. It wasn't a, this is how to part any water, anywhere, anytime you want. You just stand here and hold up a rod and it happens every time. Is that no? It was a command which would teach theology. It it wasn't a a how-to, but it was a God does. God does what is needed. It shows that God provides. That's going to be a key idea throughout this section, is that the law instructs that God provides. God provides what you need, just like he did in the Red Sea, and just like he did in showing Moses a, a tree which would rescue them, from their situation the law is meant to help you to see your need for a mediator, to see your, that you have need for somebody to cry out for you and that you have need for God to provide something for you. And as we've mentioned, the, the law didn't give life. It was God who provided the tree. By which life was given. The law doesn't save, but God's provided means does. You think about this, uh, you've probably seen a sign somewhere that says, in case of emergency, call you 911. Know, there's a set of instructions for you. Uh, are you saved by the instruction? It's like, Wow, look at this. It says, in case of emergency, call 911. We're going to be okay. We're saved. No. <laughs> you you need a rescuer. Uh, what I'm trying to bring out here is you know just a way to communicate that the the law instruction doesn't save you. It just instructs that you do need a savior and the law doesn't provide that for you the instruction doesn't provide the the savior for you it it shows that you need God's provision I know the the 911 analogy thing can kind of break down if you were able to call 911 but in this case when it comes to salvation we have an inability this is you know you're passed out unconscious next to the In case of emergency, call 911 sign. Like somebody has to do the instructions for you also. That makes the analogy more accurate. So what is God's provision? You know, we see that he gives bread, which cues us off to something. And I want you to think New Testament here. What is is God's provision bread of life. Where do we find the bread of life on the right side of our Bible? Jesus. In the book of John, chapter 6. Let's go there. We'll, go to, we'll start in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, For on him the Father, God, set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What should we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So what just happened right there with the the flip on the word work? The
1: messages.
0: right? So they get instruction, and they think that the instruction is the means of salvation. Okay, so how do we do this then? And he says, this is the work of God (laughs) that you believe, because right now you don't. And so, so, so so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? <laughs> uh, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see, this this is the work of God. God provides what you need, and you don't even know that you need it. Uh, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's saying, You you guys are all confused because you're Israelites. Uh, you're you're like your, your ancestors. Uh, they didn't see who it really was that was at work in all of these things. As for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. As you can see this, and this is gonna tie into a tree of life, the water of life, the bread of life. Well, what they, they say to him is, Lord, oh, Always give us this bread," Jesus said to them. "I am the bread of life. It's like, I I am God's provision. I I am God's word which you're to trust. And he who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. It's like, well, why is he bringing up bread and thirsting? I mean, nobody's mentioned water. Is it? Is it you guys? Have your parents read to you the Torah? You know that story of Moses and what happened in the wilderness and the manna and the living water. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's teaching by example that this is what it means to live by the bread of heaven, to to trust in him. He's the provision. It's living by, it's not living for food, it's living by his word, living by his will. It says, now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of God my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So who who is God's bread provision? It's Jesus, but he's also the giver of that. Uh, He is the gift. He's the fulfiller of manna. He's the provider and the provision. And he's the one who teaches these people, uh, you're wicked, but God has provided a way out of your wickedness into his righteousness. What we see here is that the the law doesn't bring anybody closer to God. Only Jesus can do that. And the the law can't do what only Jesus can do. The law can't do what Jesus did. It instructs us that God alone is good and that man is sinful, that God is the one who provides for you, not you. And in doing so, the other thing that the law does is it indicts the human heart. So what I did here with, we have the it, the nature of the law is that it involves a mediator. It instructs to a means of salvation, to the means of salvation. It indicts the human heart. But here in the, the middle, you see, that's the instruction. That's all the instruction it gives. It gives you the instruction to the need for a mediator. It gives you an instruction to the means of salvation. It gives you instruction that... You need that salvation because of the kind of heart that you have. So just as it points to a means of salvation, it points out the condition of the human heart. And how does the law do that? How does the law point out the condition of the human heart? We're going to scoot our way back over to Exodus 15 right exactly it comes in at the end of verse 25 and it explains the nature of the law it says he, step, he set for them a statute and a judgment and there he tested them So it's the, you know, these statutes and judgments these uh, principles and decisions that have been made are a test can I
1: modify what my wife just said? It, it seems it's not so much that they responded to the instruction, but they responded to the provision. Uh, in their groan, here God makes provision, and failing to recognize that it's not God that their gratitude is directed toward, but their gratitude And the
2: comes.
1: That
0: well, when it comes to the instruction, we're going to see. Yeah, it says yeah, they did. This is uh, sixteen twenty. Says they did not listen to Moses. When it comes to how they responded, it was you know ingratitude for the gift, but they they directed it at the mediator. And they're, they're ungrateful for the mediator and the provision. They're, they're ungrateful for God's kindness, and they see it as evil. So what you see here is that this, this test that comes to them is an exam. You know, they're, they're on the examination table. And it's like, well, what's wrong with the, the patient? You know, they, they need to be diagnosed What's the the issue here? Well, you get the elements of the test in verse 26. So if you're back in Exodus 15, verse 26, this answers." you know, how did he test them? Well, here's the test. If you will earnestly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put None of the diseases on you, which I put on the Egyptians for I Yahweh am your healer, so israel's on the sons of Israel are being examined How, how are they listening to the voice of Yahweh their God? Listening skills failed, you, know, just like we read over in sixteen twenty they did not listen uh. What about doing what was right in God's eyes before the tree of life? Failed. And this is how they were they responded to it. They said, you know, what God has done isn't good. Their responses in chapter 16, verse 3, they say, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt? Uh how would you sum up how the law examines these people? You know, what's the results of the test? What does it show us about their hearts? I think Romans chapter three sums this up really well. And having read this section here in Exodus, I want you to keep that in mind while I read through this in Romans three. And thinking about ourselves as Gentiles, and so we don't get too proud and think, well, I wouldn't have done that. What then? Are we better? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in this sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So you see here, this very much describes these people in this moment. They're not righteous, they're not good, uh, their tongues are deceptive, the influence of the serpent is behind them. There's cursing, there's bitterness, all of these sort of things. They don't fear God. But what what did the law instruction do? You know, Paul looking back at this it says, Well, what comes through the law is not a way to be saved or a way to get closer to God. What comes through the law is knowledge of sin. You know, what comes is prosecution. What comes is seeing who you really are and what you really need and that you can't do that. It's a tutor that gives you a knowledge of sin. I didn't know all this stuff was in Exodus 15 until I kept studying it later in the week. And I went, oh, wow. This answers a lot of questions I had. <laughs> and back in 1526, you have a parallel statement of this listening and doing or hearing God's perfect law and doing it. It's echoed again in parallel and saying, "You know, give ear to his commandments. You know, Be a hearer of his word. Uh, keep all his statutes. Be a doer of his word, which James picks up on this wisdom in James 1.22. twenty two. says, But become doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. So you also see there's a little bit of a a tension. You're like, wait, so the law can't bring blessing? Like it shows me who I am and I can walk away and forget who I am, but it talks about, well, this guy who does hear it, who does do it, Uh, He'll be blessed. But remember where James starts with become doers of the word. How do you become that? Uh, You need somebody to do something for you to make you a believer, one who listens, a hearer and a doer. And there is blessing indeed in following God's instruction and following his principles and decisions that are part of his law or uh, elements of his law. So think about this. If if you follow God's instruction, you know, what what can it do for you? If you're able to pull it off, you know, what's the reward? And you know, then verse 26 it says this, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. Like if you do this, you don't get diseases, but it doesn't say, if you do this, you'll be healed. And it says, you'll avoid some pain in this life, but it won't ultimately give you the healing that you need. I think the fifth commandment within the law helps us to understand what's being taught here. It says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So it's like, well, how does it go well for you as a child who uh, obeys and honors your parents? It's like, well, one of the ways it goes well for you is uh, you don't get spanked. You know, you don't you don't get disciplined. You know, that day is better because you have honored your parents. Uh, it goes well for you, it, but the does. Being disciplined in, in, in any way heal a sinful heart? I was like, no, it can't do that. I was like, it might go well for you because you you did the, the outward, the right outward thing, but it can't heal you internally of your sin. You know, the, the the legislation has limits on what it can do. It can prolife, it can prolong life in the land, but it can't give eternal life. If the law can't bring us closer to God and heal our heart's diseases, well, what, what can? Well, what we see at the end of verse 26, it's not, it's not a what, but it's the who that the law points to. It says, I, Yahweh, am your healer. God's law instruction points to Yahweh is the healer. He's what you need. Instruction doesn't save anybody. It doesn't sanctify anybody. That's something that God alone does. uh, The law can't do what Christ has done in justifying us, and the law can't do what Jesus does in also sanctifying us. And it also can't glorify us as Jesus will do as well. So what was the means of healing in the water? Was it the instruction or the tree? It was the tree, but who who provided the tree? I, Yahweh, am your healer. So the nature of the law comes full circle here. We see it involves a mediator. It instructs to the means of salvation, and it indicts the human heart Another way we could sum this up is it gives instruction that God is good, you're sinful, and you need a healer. God is the healer. And God will provide. God will provide and will be the mediator, the means, and your medic. You want me to write that down?
2: (laughs) Pretty good.
0: Put another way, God God will provide an intercessor involving a tree, and through that, heal us. What event in the Bible am I talking about? Mediator, tree, healing, makes us think of Genesis (laughs) 3.15. The cross reminds us of of Jesus, you know, where he accomplished all of these things. Now, what I'd like to do here is we're going to turn to Galatians 3.19, and you're going to see this sort of understanding of the nature of the law and Paul's thinking there. Galatians 3.19 is where we're going to pick up. And you could really kind of take these ideas that we learned from Exodus 15 and read through all of Galatians and say, like, where do I see this element? Where do I see this this sort of thing? And I think it'll be very clarifying for you. But we'll just work through this little section here in Galatians 3.19 to 29. I'll make some... Comments while we go through it. Paul says, "Why, why the law then? Yeah, what what's the nature of the law? It was added because of trans tr- trespasses. So what does it do? It indicts the human heart. As having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator. So it involves a mediator. Until the seed, which is going to give instruction about the means of salvation, the seed would come to whom the promise." Had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. So I say the mediator is going to be one for many, one mediator for many. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by law. So he said, you know, if there was an instruction that could give life, then then that's how salvation would work. But he says, it, it doesn't give life, but it points to the need for it and that somebody else has to provide it. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. It indicts the human heart so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So it instructs to the means of salvation which is faith in Jesus Christ. But before faith came we were held in custody under the law being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor unto Christ so <coughs> that we may be just justified. So here you see it it instructs us unto the mediator that is Christ, the means that is Christ the medic that is Christ. But now that faith has come and we're no longer under a tutor. So you can kind of think about this as like, well, you used to live in your parents' house, but then you, you move out of your parents' house. You were taught things in your parents' house and you go out to, to live in the world. You don't say, well, because I don't live you know, under the law of my parents' house, their law must have failed. And say, no, it did its purpose. Its purpose was to get you, you know, out of that house and into somebody and into your own home. But in this case, like we we're seeing, it's to get, get you out of Moses' house and into Jesus' house. That's the idea here. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And he's saying, explaining, you know, this is not by your work; it's by his work. He he did this to you. There is neither Jew nor Greek; there is neither slave nor free man; there is no male and female. And you are all one in Christ Jesus, because he makes a new creation, a, a new family, a new slavery. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise, according to promise, not the law but the promise and the provision. So think about ourselves. We're children of Abraham because Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them and so are you. If you have, been, if you have believed in the one and only true God and have been counted righteous, i got to add that to the song. Yeah. <laughs> so did you come into Abraham's family by trying to work to look like one of his relatives or by being adopted into that family by Christ Jesus. Right? Yeah, say, well, I'm just going to put on Abrahamic clothes and get an Abrahamic tent and say Abrahamic things and maybe that'll do it. It's like, no, you have to be adopted into the family. And then when you're adopted into the family, you'll start looking like a member of that family. You'll start looking like one who's, now been made alive to the head instructor of the family. You're not just alive to Christ, but now you're alive to his instruction. You don't have just a new relationship to Christ, but also the law of Christ. Okay, four minutes. What we're gonna do is I'm gonna go back to some of those original questions that I asked about the nature of the law. And you guys can take a stab at answering. So how how do, how does the law and the gospel relate to one another?
1: As you said, the law exposes our need for mediator for the gospel. It indicts us. Respond in obedience, we are able to, like you say, demonstrate that we've been crafted to the family of Abraham who has this response to what our mediator Christ has done for us.
0: Yeah, you see what the law points to the mediator, it points out sin that's in your heart, and your inability to do anything about it. You know, uh, another way to think of you know, the law gives you the, the bad news that points you to the good news, right? <laughs> it's so simple. Just shorthand. Yeah, it's simple, but it's so easy to get confused, and you can even have that sort of right thinking about it, but then you can have a wrong application of it cuz you can like recognize you know you're you're struggling with the sin of anger or something and you think I'm going to do this you know I'm going to kill this thing you know through God's instruction I'm going to put off and I'm going to put on but then here's what ends up missing is that I need God to provide for me I need him to be my strength I need him to be my song and my salvation like, he has to do this work in me because I can't do it. It has to be by the Spirit. But we can just just narrow in on the put, off, put on instruction and miss that Jesus does this through his Spirit, through his Word, and we can try to do it in our own strength rather than relying on him. Do you see how tricky that is? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah I've I heard that, you know, in Exodus 15... Significant to me that God has responded to their grumbling, grace and mercy, made provision, and then delivers the instruction if you will keep my commandments. You know, so after having shown himself to be their mediator, their means of grace, then he sets up the statute and, and the expectation. Their to As opposed to their flip of that, which would have made it all about words, their
0: work. right? Yeah. Well, you see, this is where Moses, you know, he 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 ends with Israel in Deuteronomy. He says, "I've lived with you guys for a long time, and I know that you're hard-hearted and stiff-necked, and I know that I've told you that." If you will listen, God will do this. But I tell you today, you won't and you can't. But I also tell you to circumcise your hearts, which you can't and you won't. But God's going to do that for you someday. And this is also how Joshua's ministry ends. He's trying to tell you, you can't stand on the mount of Blessing and the Mount of Cursing. He says, you've got to get rid of your idols. And they're they're, they're holding their idols in their hands and saying, we're going to serve Yahweh. He's like, you people are so blind and deaf to what I'm saying right now. He says, "You, you cannot serve God. He's a holy God. You're not going to do the things that you're saying. You don't have the ability to do it. But it's left with, he's going to have to circumcise your hearts and he's going to do it. So what what is the purpose of the law ultimately?
2: The Apostle Paul said, I wouldn't have known sin apart from the law it's to show us the sinfulness of sin, to help us be horrified at our true state of rebelliousness and helplessness person
0: in sin and our love of it, so we would cry out for salvation. Yeah, and to you know, it's a tutor or you could say it's a, it's also a parent. It's trying to to parent you out of your parents' house so that you're not 40 and still there. It's like this is like there's something wrong about this. <laughs> like you need to move on, but you you weren't made to stay here. They're made to go somewhere else. And the the law is like that. It's to, to parent us to Christ. It's to parent us unto our heavenly father to provide the, the bread from heaven that we really need. Now, I also brought up you know, the difference between antinomianism and legalism. Those are big words that basically mean it's the difference between somebody that both of them see their relationship to God through the law. The antinomianism, that means you know they're anti-law. They say, you know, I don't have to keep God's law to be in a right relationship with them. You know, it doesn't matter if the law is kept or not. Uh, the legalist says, well, I do have to, I do have to keep the law, which no, no legalist thinks they're a legalist. Okay, but the way that it comes out is in how how their feelings mostly. Do I feel like I'm right with God even when I've done? uh, Well, let's put it this way: Do do you still do you feel right with God uh, apart from your own efforts? You know, is it enough to hear from Jesus? You know, after you've asked for forgiveness, to to hear that it is finished, or you say well now I need to do some things for you too I mean let me do some things for you he's like you know it's just it's just a gift just you know take the gift you know say well let me pay you for it and you're you're going to offend the giver if you offer to to pay for the the gift that they've given you but this is eh, I don't really have room to to draw this so you can just kind of imagine this so you can imagine a cross that points up to God and what the antinomianism, the antinomianist, whatever you want to call them, and the, the legalist, what they do is they see, well, the, the way to God is through the law. That's what they do with the word. They say it's through, that's how you get closer to God. That's how you connect to him. But what scripture teaches with that, that cross pointing up to, to God, it's not, you're not seeing your relationship through the law, but seeing your relationship through Christ. That's the difference. You know, your relationship isn't to, to God, isn't, I keep the law or I don't keep the law. It's I know Christ or I don't know him. So can you know after reading Paul's understanding of the law in Galatians. You now can can the law save you? Why not? Yeah, the instruction can't save you and it instructs you also that you can't save you because that's usually how people will process it, but maybe the way that it, it comes out more so uh, among us is, well, but it can get us closer to God. That's how we think of it. We think, well, maybe it can be like, it's a means of sanctification, which this this is the big point in Galatians. Definitely he's talking about justification, but he's talking about people who believe, and Paul's talking to them as believers, but they're believers who think, well, there's this second tier of Christians. It's where you can be a super Christian if you add the law of Moses to your life and try to keep it. you no, saying, no, your justification is Christ. Your sanctification is also Christ. It's not that, well, you start in the spirit and then you're perfected in the flesh by trying to keep the law of Moses. Is a No, you're perfected in Christ and you remain in Christ and you grow in Christ. It's all Christ. The law law can't do what the healer does. And if the law could do that, then as Paul said in Galatians 2.21, then Christ died needlessly. Why send a savior if, if the law or you could do that? The law cannot do what Christ has done. Which I have a really cool little gospel track in my office titled that. So how do you
1: ensure, having said that, that the person doesn't fall off into the other ditch of antidote? The justification in Christ, your sanctification through Christ, what is there for me to do? Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is... I think the the clarifying example is what I tried to explain with the, you're not seeing your relationship through his law, you're seeing your relationship uh, through Christ, right? So you're not just saying, well, it doesn't matter if I keep his law, but you're saying, you know, I want to honor Christ, I want to I live by his example and use my strength to do that. So uh, I want to behold him so I become like him.
1: That desire
0: Correct, correct. And, and you see that, I, and this is, this is one of the reasons it's so difficult to, to try to evangelize or help somebody who is very churched think through these things. Because like, well, I'm familiar with that. I, I know what you're saying. I know all the right answers, to the exam that you're giving me, and I think that I do them, <laughs> which is which is the problem, and it and it's incredibly difficult to to help somebody to to, to see that. I mean, it, it, it's impossible. I mean, you you can't do it, but you can tell them the truth, and you can discern it. You can lovingly try to help somebody. And, you know, I, th- I think of a story at you know, our, our, our last church, or there was one of these messages on examining yourself, and testing yourself to see if you truly be in the faith. And there's these older ladies who had been friends and at, at, at church together for over three decades. And, you know, right after the message, the other, the one one of the ladies turns to her friend and uh she, well, okay, I'm trying to remember how the story goes. Well, lady says, well, you know, what did, what did you think about the message? And she responds to her friend, I don't think you're a Christian. She's like, what do you mean? I listen to Grace to you every week. I have a MacArthur study Bible. I've been sitting here next to you for over 30 years. And she says, I think that's the problem. That That's what your faith is in, that you do those things. And the lady was ticked, yeah. <laughs> which is usually how those conversations go. But uh, the Lord used that to to bring a hammer and to, to crush her self righteousness and her self trust. And, and a week or so later, she came back to her friend. And she said, "You know what? You're you're right, but and I and I see it. You know, God's granted me repentance and." I believe, and I'm free from the burden of thinking that I have to do all of these things and be all of these things so that I'll feel like God likes me, and that's the difference. It was, it, it could be discerned through you know, how do you feel in your relationship to God, but uh, when, when you don't read those four chapters in the morning, do you think, oh, God hates me, but if I do eight chapters tomorrow, he's going to like me. And everything's going to be okay, because you see what's happening. You're you're seeing your relationship to Him through a law that you made up. You know, He didn't make up a law that said, "You shall read four chapters a day every day," or feel cut off. But that's the sort of things that we're looking for, you know, in our hearts or in somebody else that we're seeking to help and and counsel, and they're difficult to detect, you know, we need the the wisdom of God to be able to do that. So who would like to close us in
1: prayer? Who you are in which you done know for us deep in our hearts, that we would find freedom, that one comes from relationship uh, to thank you God for Charles and the way that which is so diligent.